Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Rabbi Omer Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I'm your host, uh, Rabbi Omer Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, December 24th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire Report segment. We'll feature dispatches on the mounting casualties among the Israeli Defense Forces in their ground operation in Gaza. The North African state of Tunisia uh, held local elections today. We'll have details on that as well. Several people have died in clashes on the Burundi DRC border. And the Somalian National Army is engaging with armed rebels in the south of the Horn of Africa state. In the second hour, we look at the regional dimensions of the genocidal war against Palestinians in Gaza. Finally, uh, we review the historic Massey lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in December of 1967. We'll hear uh, installment two and three of the historic Massey lectures. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude right now, continuing with our Um Kaltum Orchestra's Film Festival. This is a concert uh, from December 9th of 1954 in Egypt. Let's listen in. Sayyidati wa sadati, hadihi ula ugniyat, hadihi laylat al-gamila. Ugniyat ghulubta salih ruhi, taftatuhu biha kawkab al-sharq. أم كلثوم هذا الحق الساهر الذي تظله نسمات الحب والإخاء والمودة التي تربط بين أبناء هذا الوادي وتلفهم جميعا في لفافة رقيقة من الحب الخالص الصادق لا لمصلحة ذاتية أو لمنفعة شخص معين وإنما لخير هذا المجموع لخير البلد لخير مصر أم كلثوم تغني غلقت صالح روحي نظم أحمد رامي تنفيم رياضة الباطل Thank you. 
I'm <laughs> 
كوكب الشرق ام كلثوم اغنية من اروع اغنياتها العاطفية اغنية غلقة صالح فروح فربطت بين القلوب وجمعت بين الارواح وكلها سابحة تهيم في دنيا دنيا فيها العواطف تتأجد وفيها الحب وفيها الحنين سيداتي وسادتي حتى نلتقي بكم مرة ثانية من هذا المكان نادي الهوليوليدو بمصر الجديدة نرجو لكم اطيب الاوقات والى اللقاء Welcome back and uh, that was uh, Um Kalthum's orchestra from uh, a live concert uh, in 1954 You're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday December 24th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire. 
Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the Israeli occupation's military spokesperson who announced yet another list of soldiers slain inside the Gaza Strip, including elite commando fighters and an armored platoon commander. Fourteen Israeli occupation troops have been eliminated in the Gaza Strip over the weekend. The spokesperson for the Israeli occupation forces admitted early this morning. The Israeli media described the death toll of its army during the past 24 hours as the biggest tragedy since the Israeli ground incursion into the Gaza Strip. The Israeli outlets went on to say that this was one of the most horrible events during the war. This is not a good morning, they said. Under the permission to publish clause, the occupation media announces, announced the names of uh, the slain soldiers and revealed their rank and the units and formations under which they served. The spokesperson announced the names of nine soldiers and officers killed earlier today uh, across the Gaza Strip. This means that the number of dead Israeli troops since October 7th has risen to 486, while the number of those killed since the occupation launched its ground invasion has reached 153. Now, adding to another five killed soldiers announced at an earlier time this weekend, the Israeli Occupation Forces spokesperson said five first sergeants of the 7th Armored Brigade were killed in the southern Gaza Strip. This includes a platoon uh, commander and the 603rd Combat Engineering Battalion in the 7th Brigade. The recently released list comes after the Palestinian resistance announced several remarkable operations targeting occupation forces, armored vehicles, and the southern Gaza Strip. The Israeli Occupation Forces 646th Paratroopers Brigade also lost two of its soldiers in the central Gaza Strip. Concurrently, two soldiers from the 11th Yiptak Reserve Commando Brigade, which includes troops who previously served in the occupation's elite Egos unit were killed. Moreover, a captain uh, who was a team commander in the Nahal patrol was killed in an unspecified location in the Gaza Strip, as announced at an earlier time. If you want to read uh, this report and others in their entirety, just log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, in the North African state of Tunisia, butter and milk shortages political party boycotts, ongoing prosecutions of the president's critics have uh, been characterized as the normality. Uh, This is the environment in which Tunisians will head to the polls uh, today for the country's first local election since President Kais Saeed wrote a new constitution that voters approved last year. Voting will determine the composition of a new National Council of Regions and Districts, One component of Saeed's vision to reshape politics in Tunisia, the country that sparked the region-wide uprising that became known as the Arab Spring some 12 years ago. The new legislative chamber is designed to focus on economic development, and candidates have campaigned on the radio about building schools, roads, and other infrastructure. It harkens back to Saeed's campaign promise to distribute power and funds far from Tunisia's capital. Tunis is synonymous with widely criticized government bureaucracy whose unpopularity helped fuel Saeed's rise. But despite the transformation promise, 
few signs of enthusiasm about elections and their ability to boy Tunisia are apparent. In the 13th election since 2011's revolution, there's little understanding about the stakes, what the new chamber has the power to do, and whether voting even matters. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the Central East Africa region, at least 20 people were killed in Gatumba, Butumbuzi, district in West Burundi's Bujumbura province. Near the border between Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, by unidentified gunmen on Friday night, a Burundian government spokesman said uh, yesterday, the deadly attack targeted nine households around 8.40 p.m. at Vogiso village. Uh, quite near uh, the border between Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The terrorists killed 20 persons, including 12 children, three women, and five men, said Burundian government spokesman Jerome Nyonzima uh, in a statement to the press. According to him, nine people were injured and rushed to the health facilities in the area, adding that their health condition was not in danger. The Burundian government extends its condolences to the families of the innocent victims and agrees that it will take charge of hospital fees for the injured victims, said Nayon Zima. The government uh, reiterated its commitment to preserving peace and security of the population and called on joint security committees to be watchful during this year end of year rest festive season. And finally, Somalia's National Army and Regional Jubilant State Forces reported that they killed more than 70 al-Shabaab fighters after conducting an operation in Abu Din area in lower Juba region in southern Somalia on Friday evening. That's according to local media. Over 70 al-Shabaab fighters and commanders were killed in a joint operation by the Somalian National Army, Jubaland State Forces, and international partners supporting the army in the war on terrorists. Jubaland State TV reported on Saturday. The latest onslaught came after al-Shabaab claimed on Thursday that they killed 33 Danab forces, SNA's elite forces, west of Kismayo, the administrative capital of Jubaland State. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, go to our website at the panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, for Sunday, December 24th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash 
Pan-African Journal, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Detroit's own Anita Baker uh, with the track entitled No One to Blame. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, December 24th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to go to Palestine and listen uh, to an analysis on uh, the impact, the regional impact of uh, the siege on Gaza uh, by uh, the state of Israel. Let's listen uh, to this report. 20,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza by Israel, armed and backed by the U.S. and European allies. More fighting nearby too, Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen among the groups involved. Could Israel's war trigger a wider conflict? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Darin Abugeda. Israel's war on Gaza has killed at least 20,000 Palestinians and injured tens of thousands more. American and European allies have called for the protection of civilians while simultaneously arming the military bombardment of one of the most densely populated areas in the world. As the death toll rises, so too does regional tension and anger among Israel's opponents. So what happens if the Gaza onslaught continues? Could it spark a wider war in the region? And do the U.S. and its allies have any leverage over the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Or does he have their backing regardless of what he does? We'll be asking those questions and more of our guests shortly. But first, Karaleg takes a look at the possible dangers if Israel's war in Gaza widens into a regional conflict. As bombs rain down on Gaza, the reverberations of Israel's war are being felt further afield. Most recently at sea, with Yemen's Houthis targeting ships in the Red Sea in an act of solidarity, they say, with Palestinians under Israel's onslaught. That's prompted the U.S. to form what it calls a multinational naval task force to patrol the vital shipping route. Within the first weeks of its war on Gaza, Israeli officials say they were preparing for a possible expansion on multiple fronts. Hamas called on regional affiliates for support following its October the 7th attacks, which killed more than 1,100 Israelis. Airports in Syria were bombed by Israel, it says to thwart potential Iranian mobilization efforts there. And in neighboring Iraq, the only Arab country in the Middle East that's passed legislation banning normalization with Israel, armed groups, many backed by Iran, pledged their support for Hamas, launching attacks on U.S. bases and threatening to go further if Israel continued its war. Not just on Gaza, but also in southern Lebanon. Cross-border attacks and exchanges of fire between Israeli forces and Iran-backed Hezbollah fighters have increased in recent months. Iran has sought to distance itself from accusations it's playing a direct role in the Hamas offensive against Israel, but it has warned of regional ramifications if Israel continues its military campaign in Gaza. 
members of the Gulf Cooperation Council have presented more of a united front as the months of war drag on, pushing for a ceasefire and humanitarian aid access through diplomatic means. Qatar and Egypt, mediators with channels to both Israel and Hamas, secured a captive exchange deal and brief pause in the fighting. And despite normalizing relations with Israel three years ago, the United Arab Emirates drafted the latest UN Security Council resolution on a ceasefire. Regional power Saudi Arabia has reportedly put its normalization talks with Israel on hold as it joined calls for a lasting truce in Gaza. Calls that as of now have fallen on deaf ears as the sound of bombs continue to resonate across Gaza. Karaleg Al Jazeera for Inside Story. Let's now bring in our guest. Joining us from New York City is Omar Rahman, who's a fellow at the Middle East Council on Global Affairs. He focuses on Palestine, Middle East geopolitics, and American foreign policy in the region. Over in Washington, D.C., we have Miko Pellet, who's a human rights activist and author. His book, The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, is based on his experiences as the son of a former military governor of the Gaza Strip. And joining us from Brussels is Elijah Magnier, a military and political analyst who, as a former war zone correspondent, has covered more than 35 years of conflict in the Middle East and North Africa. Thanks for your time, uh, gentlemen. Good to have you with us on Inside Story. Omar Rahman, uh, the longer the war in Gaza goes on, how likely is it that it sparks a regional war? And I know that this is a broad question, but we'll drill down into the details throughout this program. Sure, it certainly it, it makes the risk ever-present. Obviously, as long as it, it's ongoing, uh, that risk uh, stays there, stays active, uh, and anything can kind of kick it off. Obviously, we've seen uh, the northern front between Israel and Lebanon uh, you know, active since October 7th, and that has the potential to escalate uh, at any point. Uh, in recent weeks, months, um, the Houthis in, in Yemen have, uh, have engaged now, uh, first firing rockets, uh, and now, um, you know, closing the Bab al-Mandav Strait to shipping lanes, and that has a much broader uh, global economic uh, ramifications. And obviously, now the U.S. Uh, has has um, you know put together a kind of a coalition, a naval coalition, which importantly actually uh, is not doesn't have any uh, Arab uh, states, with the exception of Bahrain, which is almost you know, a consolation prize here. Uh, but those other Arab states even though it affects their economies as well, uh, can, you know, have not, have not engaged uh, in that effort. And that's kind of important and telling. So, Omar, if there is then a regional war, and like you say, anything could kick it off, does this then by default mean uh, more of the U.S.'s involvement? Because right now we understand the U.S. is somewhat involved in what's going on, but how, how um, deep would the U.S.'s involvement be if there's a wider escalation? Well, the U.S. Is a, is a party to this conflict uh, in many ways. Uh, first of all, in its total support for Israel as it's, as it's carried out this military campaign. Uh, that includes, uh, you know, arming the Israelis. That includes diplomatic cover for the Israelis. That includes intelligence sharing with the Israelis. Uh, so in all those particular ways. And then also, as, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the U.S. has dispatched carrier fleets to the region. So it's engaged uh, militarily somewhat. Obviously, it, it's not... Uh, heavily engaged militarily, but it's but it's involved, uh, and that's a double-edged sword because um, you know in one sense it's it's meant a deterrence, 
In another sense, it's a provocation. It also puts military targets, more military targets in the region for others uh, to attack, and we've seen that uh, take place. And so, you know, the U.S. is, is definitely engaged. Um, and, you know, th there's many ways in, in which this can affect the region, not only in terms of war, but, uh, you know, if Israel's intentions is to ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip, as it appears uh, is the case, you know, that has effects for border states like Egypt, uh, for okay. Jordan. If, sorry, okay, go ahead. okay, speaking of Israel's intentions, Miko, I'll come over to you. Do you think that there is a uh, sort of a premeditated intention by Israel to widen this war or or could it just suddenly erupt out of recklessness? Where do you think the Israeli position is on this? No, that's a good question, but I think we need to broaden the lens. I mean, we can't just look at this particular, um, at the particular, uh, you know, event that began on October the 7th. We have to look at the 75-year history of, of, of Palestine. Israel has been engaged in a genocide for 75 years. The rest of the world has been silent, mostly. Uh, the Arab countries have been neutralized, either through destruction, as we've seen in Lebanon, and I'm sorry, in Libya, Syria, Iraq, and so on, or through normalization. And Israel is free to do everything it wants. It's not only America and the West that is supporting Israel. I mean, Israel has over 40 diplomatic missions in Africa, and we don't see the African states uh, standing up for Palestine or, or, or anyone else in the world. We don't see the BRICS alliance, um, with maybe the exception of Brazil and South Africa, standing with the Palestinians. So Israel is really quite free to do everything it wants, and there's really nobody in the region that can seriously threaten Israel. Perhaps the only the only things we're seeing is that perhaps the Houthis' uh, uh, actions are the only ones that are that are showing some responsibility in trying to curb and respond to the genocide that's been going on. So, granted, what's the events that began in October seventh, um, in which, of course, you know, Palestinians were able to 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 come out of this 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 prison, which is the Gaza the Gaza Strip, and and paralyze the state of Israel. This is a, a you know a heightening of the savagery that we've seen by Israel, perhaps it's worse than anything we've seen in the past. But it's not separate from everything that's been going on since the state of Israel was established. Right, you're the, absolutely right. I mean, the, the context of all of this, Miko, is, is in fact the occupation. But what I want to get to uh, today and for the purposes of this discussion is where does Israel stand when it comes to widening this conflict, taking it outside of Gaza? Well, Israel has got more air power than anybody else. And so I don't think Israel is, is worried about that. If anybody... If anybody tries to seriously engage with Israel, then they will be wiped out, just like we've seen in Lebanon over the years. We've seen, you know, Israel's already bombing in Syria. And so I, I don't think Israel is concerned about that. Plus, the entire world is supporting it. They're getting all the weapons that they need. So I don't think Israel is worried at all about this. And I'll have to also say, I don't think there's a strategy behind Israel's actions or a, lot, a great deal of thinking. I think what we're seeing is, is, is revenge. It's just, it's just destruction and killing for the sake of vengeance because Israel was humiliated on October the 7th. So I don't think Israel is worried about that as long as it's got, it's, it's, it's able to maintain its military, uh, you know, power, its military superiority over everybody else. And like I said, the Arab countries have been neutralized. So who is there to threaten Israel? Okay, uh, Elijah, let's bring you in, and can you weigh in on this discussion? And, and you know, we've already mentioned uh, the, the Houthis in Yemen and the U.S. now announcing this uh, maritime coalition. Do you think that this could spark a regional war? It is already enlarging because uh, the intervention of Hezbollah from the second day of this conflict and uh, the support of the Iraqi resistance attacking the American bases, is sending strong messages to Israel. And finally, 
the uh, intervention of Ansarullah Houthis in Yemen is even sending more powerful message to the Israelis and to their allies that this war is no longer contained in the borders of Gaza alone, but it is enlarging slowly but surely. This is the style of the axis of the resistance, never play all the cards, and I think Israel is extremely worried about it, otherwise would never call for such a force in the Red Sea to come for help. Uh, the uh, Americans, the French, and the British would not line up in the Red Sea, uh, stopping and intercepting the missiles and the drones launched by the Houthis. It will not continue supplying the Israelis with tens of thousands of ammunition. It protects Israel at the United Nations by refusing any ceasefire. It offers 2,000 Delta forces in Israel to support it. They have American drones. All the support that Israel is getting from day one is because Israel is weak and it doesn't manage on its own to confront multiple fronts. But not only that, but even Gaza, after 75 days, it has occupied the third of Gaza, but controlled zero ground because today there were attacks on Tel Aviv. Yesterday, again, every single day there are attacks on the uh, Israeli occupation forces inside Gaza. It means Israel is quite worried about what's happening and how this war is enlarging slowly but surely. Elijah, can the, uh, what's happening in, in Yemen and the Red Sea, can, does this uh, sort of change the positions of the Israelis or the Americans? Could we see retaliation against the Houthis in Yemen, do you think? Well, the Yemeni said already, if the Americans, and they are fully aware of that, retaliate, then the whole of Babel Mandib will be shot down. But if it's going to be only limited to Babel Mandib, because that will be considered a war zone, and no commercial maritime company will dare to come close to the Red Sea, they will all be diverted to Africa, and then the Houthis will launch their surface-to-surface missiles doesn't mean they are stronger than the coalition, but they will not be defeated. But that means then the war will even enlarge even further. Because the question is, what's going to happen to the Strait of Hormuz? What's going to happen to the Mediterranean? The Houthis will not be left alone as Gaza is not left alone. Okay, um, speaking of not being left alone, Omar Rahman, I mean, when we talk about a possible regionalization, we're talking, and as you were mentioning earlier about the involvement in the U.S. that currently exists and, and, and could potentially deepen, does that then mean uh, by default uh, the, the deeper involvement of Iran? I don't know. I mean, Iran is, in a sense, playing it safe. It's, it's kind of playing the strategy it has it has conducted for many years, which is using uh, you know, non-state actors within the region uh, to carry out certain goals, to put pressure in various ways. Um, so the direct involvement in Iran, you know, I don't know, is uncertain. Now, if this, if this you know, really regionalizes uh, and there's a full-scale war in certain places, then I w- I'm sure Iran will become involved uh, one way or the other. I think uh, you know, it's not just Iran taking action. Uh, but, you know, the United States, Israel taking action against Iran and bringing it, you know, directly into the conflict itself. So I think that is, is an ever-present uh, possibility, and, you know, we'll see how that plays out. 
Uh, Mika, would Israel actually be able to fight, let's say, two full-blown conflicts? One, obviously, the war going on in Gaza, and then one, one uh, on the border with Lebanon, if it gets to that point, even with the U.S.'s backing? Yes. I mean, again, Israel's got, has got air power, and the air power is the key. I mean, granted, the ground forces are not as effective, uh, certainly not, not when they, they face the Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon or the Palestinians in Gaza. But Israel got air power. We've seen what Israel has done in Lebanon in the past. I mean, they caused massive, you know, millions of refugees, total destruction. Um, and I don't really see who is, the, who is out there that can threaten Israel with, a, with an all-out war. Uh, Hassan Nasrallah made it very clear that this is, you know, this is a Palestinian issue, that it's not going to be a, a larger, a larger, wider war. I, I don't see how Iran could possibly get involved. Which is not, they're not going to send troops. I mean, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't see, I don't see how this is going to happen. I think Israel understands this. And again, Israel has been working very hard for decades to neutralize all of its neighbors, either by destruction or normalization. And nobody's got the military force that Israel has, or again, the hardware, the capability, the, the, the capability to cause destruction. So yes, there's a body, you know, missiles coming from, from uh, here, missiles coming from there, the Houthis in, 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 in Yemen trying to, to add to this, but a serious threat to Israel, I don't, I don't, I don't see where it's going to come from. And again, Israel's got the ability to bomb and destroy entire cities, you know, and, and, and again, with the full support of the United States, the full support of the rest of the world. So I don't think Israel is, I don't think Israel has a reason to worry about this. Um, the only way that Israel, the only thing that Israel does have to worry about, and I believe they are worried, is on the diplomatic front, is on the public opinion front, is the fact that more and more people around the world are standing up for, you know, to support the Palestinians. But in terms of, in terms of war, Israel, I don't, I don't see how, what, where the threat would come from. And I'm sure the Israelis can see that as well. And I'll say again about Iran. You know, I don't see how Iran's not going to be sending troops. I mean, logistically, this doesn't really work. And again, Israel's strategy of neutralizing its neighbors is working very well uh, in, 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 in allowing it to do what it's doing and at the same time not be threatened by anyone. Elijah, um, look, I mean, Hassan Nasrallah did say in one of his speeches that events on the ground will dictate uh, the group's position and what they do going forward. Um, but for the Israelis, having the Americans stationed off the coast of Lebanon right now, off the shores of Lebanon, uh, do you think that they're sending a message to Hezbollah in Lebanon? Absolutely not, because the uh, Israelis were sending several messages to Lebanon and to Hezbollah, and Hezbollah has been retaliating. And the Americans are trying with the French to, uh, to create a dialogue where they can persuade Hezbollah to leave the borders. But the problem is that the Americans and the Israelis have a limited knowledge about how Hezbollah is deployed in South of Lebanon because they are the same people who live in the South of Lebanon who are part of the South of Lebanon, that are part of the society who are defending their front and attacking Israel. Now, those who think, I don't think the Israeli officials are that uh, naive to think that having a superpower with the Air Force, that is enough. This, this is really uh, something in the elementary school. It showed in the military knowledge that if we look at Afghanistan, the Americans have the superpower against the Afghani who has not even one jet, and yet the Americans did not defeat Afghanistan. The same in Lebanon. 
1982, the Israeli invaded the country, and Hezbollah doesn't have jets. And in the year 2000, Ehud Barak pulled out of Lebanon. It was kicked out. In 2006, the Israeli had a superpower, and they had the superiority in air force, and they did manage to achieve their objective. And without going very far in history, in 2023, in Gaza, Israel has 700 jets. What the jets has achieved so far, has any of the Hamas member raised a white flag to an Israeli jet? This is why they had to send boots on the ground, and the soldiers that are on the ground are attacked and are killed and are suffering high casualty in a tiny little area in a big open concentration camp that was surrounded for all these years and yet managing to stand against what used to be called the most uh, powerful uh, army in the Middle East that was humiliated on the 7th of October and continued to be so in Gaza every single day. Right. Um, let's move on to uh, Ahmad for a moment. Ahmad, do you think that the U.S. has a clear plan as to where this war is heading? And I'm not here asking you about the day after what happens to Gaza. I'm asking about the actual war on the ground. Do you think that the U.S. wants to see a temporary ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire? Uh, is, is there a strategy? Well, it's made pretty clear that it uh, is uninterested in a ceasefire from its behavior at the UN Security Council in terms of vetoing and delaying uh, UN Security Council resolutions, which would have a legal, legally binding uh, effect. Um, at the same time, you know, obviously the U.S. is, is making statements. I don't know if it's paying lip service to the civilian casualties in the way that Israel is conducting the war. Now, it's hard to say if that's genuine concern, if it's posturing while, you know, playing interference, running interference for the Israelis, whether this is some kind of schizophrenic policy in terms of, you know, Biden in, in terms of all-out support for Israel, while others in his administration are wavering on that front, uh, it's hard to say. But, you know, the U.S., uh, when it, where it matters, where it counts, is arming the Israelis, it's financing the Israelis, it's providing support for the Israelis on the ground, uh, as well as uh, within the United Nations. That's important. And it's, it's really hard to understand you know, the benefit for the United States. I think in every possible way, this is a disaster uh, for the United States in terms of its national interests, in terms of its international standing, uh, even domestically. I mean, if you could make the argument that domestically this was helping Biden, that would be one thing. But his support is at its lowest possible. Uh, and, and, and several polls are showing that that is also even tied to his, uh, his response uh, to what's happening in Gaza. So, on every front, uh, this, is a, this is a problem for the United States, and yet uh, it is continuing to, to carry on along this path and support Israel, um, and that is, that is very problematic. Mika, do you, th do you think that the U.S. and other allies who are still supporting Israel have any leverage over the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, at this point, or, or does he have their backing regardless of what he does and how he conducts this war? Well, the answer is yes to both. I mean, they, he does have their support right now, of course, um, because this is Israel, and Israel has always had the support of, the, of its allies 110%. Again, going back historically, the genocide of, of, of the Palestinian people going back 75 years, you know, nobody's ever stood in Israel's way. Um, they have leverage. Of course they have leverage. They could stop this tomorrow. They could dismantle. They could bring to the, the complete dismantling of the, the apartheid state tomorrow and, and the creation of a free democratic Palestine from the river to the sea, they could have eliminated, they could, they could have prevented all these tens of thousands of horrific deaths of Palestinians in Gaza over the last uh, couple of months. So of course they have leverage, 
they do have leverage. The question, the thing is, they're not using their leverage. Rather than using their leverage, and I agree, this is strategically, this is this is a huge blunder. Because why uh, do you think that they're not using their leverage at this point? Because there's no reason to. I mean, there's no the public opinion is not pressuring the elected politicians to do so. There's a tradition in the United States and in the West of supporting Israel, a tradition that goes back a very long time, and is the result of a great deal of effort by the various Zionist groups that, that exist, that operate in the West. So, so supporting Israel is something that comes naturally. It's not even something people have to try to think about because it is so, so entrenched in, in, in the culture and the thinking in the West that we must support Israel. And so the, there's no real deep strategic thinking going into this. It's almost reflexive, I think. Um, and so the, the, there, it's, unless there's some serious pressure by constituents that will force elected officials to stand up and end the apartheid state and end this genocide and end this massive brutality against the Palestinian people, there's no reason to expect they will use their leverage because, again, this is part of, this is how business is done. There's nobody disrupting the business as usual of supporting Israel. There's nobody standing up there and presenting the case for Palestine, if you will. Right. It doesn't exist. There's no counterparts to the Israeli efforts, to the Israeli lobbies, to the various Israeli groups that operate in, in you know, all over all over the United States and certainly in, in Europe. So right. until such time that such, you know, a presence exists, there's no reason to expect the United States or the West would use their leverage against Israel. Um, Elijah, uh, look, it's been described uh, as, as a genocide, what's going on in Gaza by uh, UN human rights experts. Uh, but still, as Mika was just saying, uh, the U.S. not using its leverage on Israel to stop this war. Are the Israelis actually achieving any of their strategic military objectives that they set out to do? What they have announced they will never achieve, but what they did not announce, they are trying to achieve it. So they said we will defeat Hamas and free all the hostages and the prisoners and the captives, whatever. So they understood they cannot release anyone without negotiation, so that objective is not going to be achieved, and they are asking uh, Qatar to uh, uh, mediate for the release of the prisoners and to uh, eliminate Hamas. Uh, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak said Hamas is an ideology cannot be defeated. This is why the Israelis are doing something completely different, that are destroying Gaza. So they are making sure that no, no people, no Palestinian uh, Christian or Muslim will ever return to the north, at least. This is where they are at at the moment, and they have destroyed all that part. Now, this is where everybody is looking at what's happening there and the behavior of the resistance, if it is still on the same phase, because nobody wants to disturb the Palestinian cause and all the people who are supporting Gaza and supporting the Palestinian resistance to defend themselves are making sure that the war is not turning between Israel and Iran or Israel and Hezbollah or Israel and the Iraqis. This is why there is a very strong focus on what's happening in Gaza and how far the Israelis are going to continue the destruction and the killing of the children and women. But how and delicate is the situation, Elijah? So, that, you know, that turning point that could turn between with the Iraqis or with Hezbollah in Lebanon or with the Houthis in Yemen, how delicate is it at this point? It is extremely delicate because the Palestinian cause should not be diverted, of course, 
Otherwise, it will lose the support of the population worldwide. So far, who is supporting Israel is only the United States, and Britain abstained to vote in favor of non-ceasefire. Therefore, the rest of the world doesn't stand with Israel. However, it is important not to create a, a conflict between Iran and Israel or Hezbollah and Israel, but in the name of Gaza, in the name of the children and women in Gaza. This is exactly what Ansarullah in Yemen have done, and this is why they limited their action only to lift the siege on Gaza. So they're not fighting in the name of Iran. They're not fighting in the name of whatever proxies anyone would like to call them. They're fighting in the name of the Palestinian civilians who are murdered every single day in Gaza by the Israelis. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thanks to my guests, Omar Rahman, Miko Pellet, and Elijah Magnier. Thank you for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. For further discussion, you can go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Join the conversation on X. Our handle is AJ Inside Story. From myself and the whole team here in Doha, thanks for watching and bye-bye for now. Uh, that was a discussion on the regional implications of the Israeli-U.S.-backed uh, genocidal war against the people of Gaza and against the people of Palestine as a whole. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December 24th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with the Tribute to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the upcoming uh, 95th um, birthday of Dr. King on January the 15th, uh, which is a federal holiday inside uh, the United States, will be uh, right. I've got you. If someone wants to 
Sunday, December 24th, 2023, and we're going to go to uh, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Tribute coming up in the city of Detroit. We will host uh, the 21st Annual Detroit uh, MLK Day Rally in March on January 15th, uh, beginning at noon at the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Episcopal Church on Woodward Avenue, 8850 Woodward Avenue between Holbrook and King. And, of course, the featured Guest speakers uh, will be uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, U.S. Congresswoman, and Sean Fain, President of the UAW International. Let's listen to uh, Dr. King, uh, the part two of the Massey Lectures. The Best of Ideas presents the Massey Lectures for 1967 by Martin Luther King. In the second of his five Massey Lectures for the CBC, Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Martin Luther King talks about a subject that has forced him recently to widen his consideration of the possibilities of nonviolence beyond the civil rights work for which he is already famous. That subject is conscience and the war in Vietnam. It is several months now since I found myself obliged by conscience to end my silence and to take a public stand against my country's war in Vietnam. The considerations which led me to that painful decision have not disappeared. Indeed, they have been magnified by the course of events since then. The war itself is intensified. Its impact on my country is even more destructive. I cannot speak about the great themes of violence and nonviolence, of social change and of hope for the future, without reflecting on the tremendous violence of Vietnam, not even when I am speaking to an audience of Canadians who are not directly involved in the war. Since the spring, when I first made public my opposition to my government's policy, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my decision. Why you, they have said. Peace and civil rights don't mix. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people? And when I hear such questions, I have been greatly saddened, for they mean that the inquirers have never really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In explaining my position, I have tried to make it clear that I remain perplexed 
as I think everyone must be perplexed by the complexities and ambiguities of Vietnam. I would not wish to underrate the need for a collective solution to this tragic war. Neither would I wish to present North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front as paragons of virtue, nor to overlook the role they can play in a successful resolution of the problem. While they both may have justifiable reasons to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I had several reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam. And I watched the program broken and eviscerated, as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonical destructive suction tube. And so I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. And so we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize that they would never live on the same block in Detroit. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, but it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. 
as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. For those who ask the question, aren't you a civil rights leader, and thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace, I answer by saying that I have worked too long and hard now against segregated public accommodations to end up segregating my moral concern. Justice is indivisible. It must also be said that it would be rather absurd to work passionately and unrelentingly for integrated schools and not be concerned about the survival of a world in which to be integrated. I must also say further that something in the very nature of our organizational structure in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led me to this decision. In 1957, when a group of us formed that organization, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. As if the weight of such a commitment were not enough, Another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1964. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Prize for Peace was also a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances. But even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against the war. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for victims of our nation and for those it calls enemy for no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam and search within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion, 
my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the hunter in Saigon, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them, too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence, and we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. For nine years following 1945, we vigorously supported the French in that abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come through the Geneva Agreements. But instead, there came the United States, determined that whole should not unify the temporarily divided nation. And the peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators, our chosen man, Premier Diem. The peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted out all opposition, supported that extortionist landlords, and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all this was presided over by U.S. influence and then by the increasing numbers of United States troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem's methods had aroused. When Diem was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictatorships seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America as we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, inept, and without popular support. All the while, the people read our leaflets and received regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically as we herd them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs are rarely met. They know that they must move or be destroyed by our bombs, and they go primarily women and children and the aged. They watch as we poison their water, as we kill a million acres of their crops. They wandered into the hospitals 
with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted injury. They wandered into the towns and see thousands of children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we ally ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? Where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in crushing one of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political forces, the United Buddhist Church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. What liberators! Now there is little left to build on save bitterness. And soon the only solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified hamlets. The peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. Could we blame them for such thoughts? We must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are our brothers. Perhaps the more difficult but no less necessary task is to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North? as if there were nothing more essential to the war. How can they trust us when now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of Diem, and charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land? Surely we must understand their feelings, even if we do not condone their actions. How do they judge us? when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communists and yet insist on giving them the blanket name, they ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunter. Their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again and then show it up with the power of new violence. Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence, and it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves, for from his view we may indeed see the basic weakness of our own condition, and if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi.
in the north where our bombs now pummel the land and our mines endanger the waterways, we are met by a deep but understandable mistrust. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with Diem to prevent elections which would have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over the united Vietnam. And they realized they had been betrayed again. When we ask why they do not leap to negotiate, these things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the Diem regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva Agreements concerning foreign troops. And they remind us that they did not begin to send in any large number of supplies or men until American forces had moved into the tens of thousands. Hanoi remembers how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures for peace, how we claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces, and now he has surely heard the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. At this point, I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless on Vietnam and to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. But it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved, and the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. If we continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. It will become clear that our minimal expectation is to occupy it as an American colony, and men will not refrain from thinking that our maximum hope is to go China into a war so that we may bomb her nuclear installations. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted, 
I speak for the poor of America, who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as an American to the leaders of my own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. Last spring, I made public the steps I consider necessary for this to happen. I should add now only that while many Americans have supported the proposals, the government has so far not recognized one of them. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own folly. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his conviction. But we must all protest. That is something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter that struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped 
and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. This kind of positive revolution of values is our best defense against communism. War is not the answer. Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs or nuclear weapons. These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Dr. Martin Luther King on Conscience and the War in Vietnam. That was the second of his five Massey lectures for 1967. The third one on youth and nonviolent action will be heard next Monday at the same time, 10.30 p.m. Today's talk was recorded in Atlanta by Janet Somerville and Del McKenzie. This series will be available for the CBC in paperback form in 1968. For a discussion of Dr. King's talk, stay tuned for the Best of Ideas, Part 2, over most of these stations after the news. Alan Maitland speaking. Down my sword and shield, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield, down by the riverside, I'm going to study... This is the CBC Radio Network. And this is uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, December 24th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And that was the second installment of the historic uh, Massey Lectures over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in 1967, uh, some 56 years ago. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more 
on the legacy of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Impressions, uh, we're a winner, and uh, that was the music uh, of the movement. And uh, right now we want to move into part three of the Massey Lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1967 over the CBC radio. The Best of Ideas presents the Massey Lectures for 1967. Dr. Martin Luther King, Nobel Peace Prize winner and leader in the movement for civil rights and nonviolent social change in the United States, is heard tonight with a third of his five half-hour talks on issues of conscience, violence, and change in world society. Tonight's reflections are on youth and social action. Dr. King. When Paul Goodman wrote Growing Up Absurd in 1959... He electrified the public with his description of the shattering impact on the young generation of the spiritual emptiness of contemporary society. Now, eight years later, it is not spiritual emptiness that is terrifying, but spiritual evil. In 1967, young men of America are fighting dying and killing in Asian jungles in a war whose purposes are so ambiguous the whole nation sees with dissent. They are told they are sacrificing for democracy, but the Saigon regime, their ally, is a mockery of democracy. 
and the black American soldier has himself never experienced democracy. While the war devours the young abroad, at home urban outbreaks pit black youth against young soldiers and guardsmen as racial and economic injustice exhaust human endurance. Prosperity gluts the middle and upper class, while poverty imprisons more than 30 million Americans, and literally starvation stalks rural areas of the South. Crime rises in every segment of society. As diseases are conquered and health improved, mass drug consumption and alcoholism assume epidemic proportions. The alienation of young people from society rises to unprecedented levels, and masses of voluntary exiles emerge as modern gypsies, aimless and empty. This generation is engaged in a cold war, not only with the earlier generation, but with the values of its society. It is not the familiar and normal hostility of the young groping for independence. It has a new quality of bitter antagonism and confused anger, which suggests basic issues are being contested. These are unprecedented attitudes because this generation was born and matured in unprecedented conditions. The generation of the past 25 years cannot be understood without remembering that it has lived during that period through the effects of four wars, World War II, the Cold War, the Korean War, and Vietnam. No other generation of young Americans was ever exposed to a remotely similar traumatic experience. Yet, as spiritually and physically abrasive as this may be, it is not the worst aspect of contemporary experience. This is the first generation to grow up in the era of the nuclear bomb, knowing that it may be the last generation of mankind. This is a generation not only to war, but a war in its ultimate revelation. This is a generation that truly has no place to hide and no place to find security. These are evils enough to send a reason reeling. And, of course, they are not the only ones. All of them form part of the matrix in which this generation's character and experience were formed. The tempest of evils provides the answer for those adults who ask why this young generation is so unfathomable, so alienated, and frequently so freakish. For the young people of today, peace and social tranquility are as unreal and remote as night errantry. Under the impact of social forces unique to their times, young people have splintered into three principal groups, though, of course, there is some overlap among the three. The largest group of young people is struggling to adopt itself to the prevailing values of our society. Without much enthusiasm, They'd accept the system of government 
the economic relationships of the property system and the social stratifications both engender. But even so, they are a profoundly troubled group and the harsh critics of the status quo. In this largest group, social attitudes are not congealed or determined. They are fluid and searching. Though all recent studies point to the fact that the war in Vietnam is our focus of concern, most of them are not ready to resist the draft or to take clear-cut stands on issues of violence and nonviolence. But their consciences have been touched by the feeling that is growing all over the world of the horror and insanity of war, of the imperative need to respect life, of the urgency of moving past war as a way to solve international problems. So while they will not glorify war, and while they feel ambiguous about America's military posture, this majority group reflects the confusion of the larger society, which is itself caught up in a kind of transitional state of conscience as it moves slowly toward the realization that war cannot be justified in the human future. That is the second group of young people. They are the radicals. They range from moderate to extreme in the degree to which they want to alter the social system. All of them agree that only by structural change can current evils be eliminated because the roots are in the system rather than in men are in faulty operation. These are a new breed of radicals. Very few adhere to established ideology. Some borrow from old doctrines of revolution, but practically all of them suspend judgment on what the form of a new society must be. They are in serious revolt against old values and have not yet concretely formulated the new ones. They are not repeating previous revolutionary doctrines. Most of them have not even read the revolutionary classics. Ironically, their rebelliousness comes from having been frustrated in seeking change within the framework of the existing society. They tried to build racial equality and met tenacious and vicious opposition. They worked to end the Vietnam War and experienced futility. So they seek a fresh start with new rules and a new order. It is fair to say, though, that at present they know what they don't want rather than what they do want. Their radicalism is growing because the power structure of today is unrelenting in defending not only its social system but the evils it contains. So naturally it is intensifying the opposition. What is the attitude of this second radical group to the problem of violence? In a word, mixed. There are young radicals today who are pacifists, and there are many who are armchair revolutionaries who insist on the political and psychological need for violence. These young theorists of violence elaborately scorn the process of dialogue in favor of the tactics of confrontation. They glorify the guerrilla movement 
and especially its new motto, Che Guevara, and they equate revolutionary consciousness with the readiness to shed blood. But across the spectrum of attitudes towards violence that can be found among the radicals, is that a unifying thread? I think that is. Whether they read Gandhi or Franz Fanon, all the radicals understand the need for action, direct, self-transforming and structure-transforming action. This may be their most creative collective insight. The young people in the third group I mentioned earlier are currently called hippies. They may be traced in a fairly direct line from yesterday's beatniks. The hippies are not only colorful but complex, and in many respects that extreme conduct illuminates a negative effect of society's evils on sensitive young people, while there are variations, those who identify with this group have a common philosophy. They are struggling to disengage from society as that expression of their rejection of it. They disavow responsibility to organize society. Unlike the radicals, they are not seeking change but flight. When occasionally they merge with a peace demonstration, it is not to better the political world, but to give expression to their own world. The hardcore hippie is a remarkable contradiction. He uses drugs to turn inward, away from reality, to find peace and security. Yet he advocates love as the highest human value, love which can exist only in communication between people, and not in the total isolation of the individual. The importance of the hippies is not in their unconventional behavior, but in the fact that some hundreds of thousands of young people, in turning to a flight from reality, are expressing a profoundly discrediting judgment on the society they emerge from. It seems to me that the hippies will not last long as a mass group. They cannot survive because there is no solution in escape. Some of them may persist by solidifying into a secular religious sect. Their movement already has many such characteristics. We might see some of them establish utopian colonies, like the 17th and 18th century communities established by sects that profoundly opposed the existing order and its values. Those communities did not survive, but they were important to their contemporaries because their dream of social justice and human value continues as a dream of mankind. In this context, one dream of the hippie group is very significant. That is its dream of peace. Most of the hippies are pacifists, and a few have thought their way through to a persuasive and psychologically sophisticated peace strategy. And society at large may be more ready now to learn from that dream 
than it was a century or two ago to listen to the argument for peace, not as a dream, but as a practical possibility, something to choose and use. From this quick tour of the three main groupings of our young people, it should be evident that this generation is in substantial ferment. Even the large group that is not disaffected from society is putting forward basic questions and its restlessness helps to account for the radicals with their angry protest and the hippies with their systematic withdrawal. When the less sensitive supporters of the status quo try to argue against some of these condemnations and challenges, they usually cite the technological marvels our society has achieved. However, that only reveals their poverty of spirit. Mammoth productive facilities with computer mines, cities that engulf the landscape and pierce the clouds, planes that almost outrace time, these are awesome, but they cannot be spiritually inspiring. Nothing in our glittering technology can raise man to new heights because material growth has been made an end in itself. In the absence of moral purpose, man himself becomes smaller as the works of man become bigger. Another distortion in the technological revolution is that instead of strengthening democracy at home, it has helped to eviscerate it. Gargantuan industry and government woven into an intricate computerized mechanism leaves a person outside. The sense of participation is lost. The feeling that ordinary individuals influence important decisions vanishes, and man becomes separated and diminished. When an individual is no longer a true participant, when he no longer feels a sense of responsibility to his society, the content of democracy is emptied. When culture is degraded and vulgarity enthroned, when the social system does not build security but induces peril, inexorably the individual is impelled to pull away from a soulless society. This process produces alienation. Perhaps the most pervasive and insidious development in contemporary society. Alienation is not confined to our young people, but it is rampant among them. Yet alienation should be foreign to the young. Growth requires connection and trust. Alienation is a form of living death. It is the acid of despair that dissolves society. Up to now, I have been looking at the tragic factors in the quarter century of history that today's youth has lived through. But is that another side? Are there forces in that quarter century that could reverse the process of alienation? We now must go back over those 25 years to search for positive ingredients which have been there, but in relative obscurity against the exaltation of technology, 
there has always been a force struggling to respect higher values. None of the current evils rose without resistance, nor have they persisted without opposition. During the early 1950s, the hangman operating within the Cold War troops was McCarthyism. For years, it decimated social organizations, throttled free expression, and intimidated into bleak silence not only liberals and radicals, but men in hide and protected places. A very small band of courageous people fought back, braving ostracism, slander, and loss of livelihood. Gradually and painfully, however, the democratic instinct of Americans was awakened, and the ideological brute force was rooted. By the way, Canada played a valuable role. CBC Radio produced a satire of extraordinary brilliance on McCarthyism entitled The Investigator, which was recorded and widely circulated in the United States with devastating effect. However, McCarthyism left a legacy of social paralysis. Fear persisted through succeeding years, and social reform remained inhibited and defensive. A blanket of conformity and intimidation conditioned young and old to exalt mediocrity and convention. Criticism of the social order was still imbued with implications of treason. The war in Korea was unpopular, but it was never subject to the Suchin criticism and mass demonstrations that currently characterize the opposition to the war in Vietnam. The blanket of fear was lifted by Negro youth. When they took their struggle to the streets, a new spirit of resistance was born. Inspired by the boldness and ingenuity of Negroes, white youth stirred into action and formed an alliance that aroused the conscience of the nation. It is difficult to exaggerate the creative contribution of young Negroes. They took nonviolent resistance, first employed in Montgomery, Alabama, in mass dimensions, and developed original forms of application, sit-ins, freedom rides, and wait-ins. To accomplish these, they first transformed themselves. Young Negroes had traditionally imitated whites in dress, conduct, and thought in a rigid middle-class pattern. Gunnar Myrdal described them as exaggerated Americans. Now they ceased imitating and began initiating. Leadership passed into the hands of Negroes, and their white allies began learning from them. This was a revolutionary and wholesome development for both. It is ironic that today so many educators and sociologists are seeking methods to instill middle-class values in Negro youth as an ideal in social development. It was precisely when young Negroes threw off their middle-class values that they made an historic social contribution. They abandoned those values when they put careers and wealth in a secondary role. 
when they cheerfully became jailbirds and troublemakers, when they took off their Brooks Brothers attire and put on overalls to work in the isolated rural South, they challenged and inspired white youth to emulate them. Many left school not to abandon learning, but to seek it in more direct ways. They were constructive school dropouts, a variety that strengthened society and themselves. These Negro and white youth preceded the conception of the Peace Corps, and it is safe to say that their work was the inspiration for its organization on an international scale. The collective effort that was born out of the Civil Rights Alliance was awesomely fruitful for this century in the first years of the 1960s. The repressive forces that had not been seriously challenged for almost a decade now faced an aroused adversary. A torrent of humanist thought and action swept across the land, scoring first small and then larger victories. The awakening grew in breath, and the contested issues encompassed other social questions. A phalanx of reliable young activists took protests from hiding and revived a sense of responsible rebellion. A peace movement was born. The Negro Freedom Movement would have been historic and worthy even if it had only served the cause of civil rights but its laurels are greater because it stimulated a broader social movement that elevated the moral level of the nation. In the struggle against the preponderant evils of the society, decent values were preserved. Moreover, a significant body of young people learned that in opposing the tyrannical forces that were crushing them, they added stature and meaning to their lives. The alliance of Negro and white youth that fought bruising engagements with the status quo inspired each other with a sense of moral mission, and both gave the nation an example of self-sacrifice and dedication. These years, the late 60s, are the most crucial time for the movement I have been describing. That is a sense in which it can be said that the civil rights and peace movements are over, at least in their first form, the protest form, which gave them their first victories. That is a sense in which the alliance of responsible young people, which the movement represented, has fallen apart under the impact of failures, discouragement, and consequent extremism and polarization. The movement for social change has entered a time of temptation to despair because it is clear now how deep and systematic are the evils it confronts. That is a strong temptation to despair of programs and actions and to dissipate energy in hysterical talk. That is a temptation to break up into mutually suspicious extremist groups in which blacks reject the participation of whites, and whites reject the realities of their own history. Welcome back. And uh, that was the historic uh, Massey Lectures uh, delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in December of 1967 over the Canadian uh, Broadcasting Corporation. 
And uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, December the 24th, uh, 2023. We've been broadcasting uh, from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, we also, uh, if you want to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with the music of the Charlie Parker Quintet uh, playing at Carnegie Hall on December 24th of 1949. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Charlie Parker and the All-Stars. Thank you, and a very Merry Christmas to you. On piano, ladies and gentlemen, great gentlemen, Al Haig. Al Haig on piano. On trumpet, on trumpet clean from Brooklyn, we bring you Red Rodney. On bass, on bass, Tommy Potter. And finally, on drums, Joe Haynes. Did I say Joe? Well, you know I meant Roy. I didn't mean it, really. And now, ladies and gentlemen, to start things off, based on how high the moon, here's ornithology.